Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Well, we are um, continuing with John chapter 8. So last Sunday night, for those who were here, Luke preached on this passage and he preached on it through the lens of the scapegoat mechanism and the mob. And so we had a look at what happens when there is a mob that gathers and how that idea of scapegoating and guilt placing um, alleviates the mob. And yeah, it was, it's probably up on the podcast. I don't know. Um, I presume it is. Um, worth having a listen. So we're, we're talking, to, this week we're looking at this passage through the lens of mercy. And then next week we're going to be looking at this passage and really having in the afternoon and cracking open shame and how this passage has a lot of shame in it um, and how we can allow, I guess it's not, it's more about opening our lives and the shame in our lives and allowing Jesus to speak to us. So that's what we're doing this week and next week. Um, So how about we read the passage? Um, So this is, I'm going to read actually from um, John chapter 7 verse 53, which is the very last verse of chapter 7. And then this passage, um, chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So what I want to do just as we dive into this, and I really am going to be, we're going to be looking at this passage through the lens of mercy. Um, And I'm just going to be picking out a few different things in this passage that are interesting and I think have things to teach us about who God is and what God is like. Um, But first of all, I want to just talk a bit about the context of this passage. So full disclaimer, if you've read this in your Bible, and I'm sure you have, you will notice that the whole of this passage is actually in italics, and there is a note attached to this 
um, story that says that the earliest manuscripts of, of John actually don't contain this story. And so there, there is an acknowledgement that this was a later addition to the Gospel of John. Um, you're also going to have to forgive me because I have a very annoying, tickly, dry throat at the moment and I'm endeavouring not to cough. So, um, so that's a full, like a full disclaimer that, that some of the earliest manuscripts don't have this. Can you open that for me? I'm going to have to. Um, so someone inserted this um, probably at a later date. Not too late probably, but... It was at a later date. So that's just a full disclaimer. Some people will say that this passage is not actually credible because of that. I think what other scholars tend to say is that this was probably a very well-known story that was circulating in the early church, in the early believers, soon after the life of Jesus. And there was a consensus across all the people that this is credible, that this story is truthful, this story happened and this story talks and teaches us about Jesus. And they felt that if it was left out of scripture, what that means is it's left out of the liturgy of the church, which means it wouldn't be regularly read as part of the liturgical calendar. And so it was put in because it was believed that actually this is really important. And we see it most clearly here in our Bibles, here in John, but there's also evidence that Luke, it was placed into Luke as well in, in different places. So do what you want with that. Um, do what you want with the idea that the Bible was edited after it was written. <laughs> um, but either way, what I'm going to, the way I'm going to speak on this today is as if John did actually put this particular narrative at this particular point for a particular reason. Because both the writers and anyone who handled the Bible did so very, very carefully and I think there's reason why this passage is inserted, the, the, the place that it is. And I think that there's things that whoever did that, they want us to join some dots. That if this was put at John 3 or John 10 or Luke 20, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't have the same ability to join the dots. And so there's a reason, I believe, why, why this is here. Um, there's an intentional and very intelligent reason why this little passage was inserted into this bit. So... The whole of John chapter 7 right through to John chapter 21 is all part of one continuous scene that John writes. And it was attached and set during the Feast of Tabernacles, which was an eight-day festival um, set in Jerusalem. And it was one of the three pilgrimage festivals that are in the Jewish calendar. So there were three pilgrimage festivals uh, Passover, Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. What that meant was that the Jewish people were encouraged to come to Jerusalem for the festival. So sure, it might be celebrated out in the countryside and in different towns, but you were expected as part of your faithful practice um, of worship to Yahweh that at several times through your life you would actually come to Jerusalem for these festivals. That was what was seen as true worship. So what we have is this idea that Jerusalem is filled with people from all over the place. It is bustling. They've all come. Like there are, there's people everywhere, both the people who lived in Jerusalem and all the people that have come. It's also the Feast of Tabernacles is called Sukkot. I don't even know how to say that, but Sukkot, which is the Hebrew word for tents or booths. 
And so again, this is a festival that is commemorating and celebrating the time when the Jews were travelling in the wilderness and living in tents after the Exodus. So it's like this festival is put in their calendar. It's there to, re to remind them and to help them remember we lived in tents once when God was bringing us through into freedom. And what would happen at this festival is that people would be encouraged to actually sleep for the whole eight days in a tent, in, in a booth outside of their house. <coughs> um, so imagine Jerusalem, a city with tents and booths and things erected in all the streets, people sleeping outside in these tents, all in celebration and memory of their time in the wilderness. So it is an incredible time, um, eight days of celebration in Jerusalem. And there were two very special things that would happen during this festival. One relates to water and one relates to light, both things that were very important to the Israelites when they wandered in the desert. So water, obviously, in the desert is a really important feature. You need to find water. You need to be able to drink water to survive. And in commemoration of all the ways that God provided water for the Israelites in the desert, during this festival, um, <coughs> the priests would do a special ceremony, all the priests, and all the people would follow them. And they would walk from the temple down to the pool of Siloam and they would fill all these pitchers full of water and they would walk back up singing the psalms to the temple and they would pour the water over the altar. So there was this big grand water ceremony. I don't know if any of you have been in Thailand during Songkran or various water festivals around the world where there's just... This was one of those. And so there's water and there's symbols of water and there's water pouring everywhere. Maybe there were water fights in the streets as the kids are getting involved in this celebration of water. And it's during that part of the ceremony that Jesus comes and he stands up and he says to the crowd, you who are thirsty, come to me and drink. All who believe in me, rivers of living water will flow out of them. And so he's capturing this essence of water from this festival and he's reorienting it around himself. And that's John chapter 7. Later on in John chapter 8, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will never walk in darkness. And the other feature of the Feast of Tabernacles was it was a ceremony of light. And they would erect four 25-metre-high lanterns or lamps in the court of women at the temple. And they would light them up every night as a, as a sign and memory that the Lord led them by fire through the desert. You know, the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day. So they would light up the 25, I don't even know how they did that back in those days. Oil lamps, 25 metres high. Rumour has it, it lit up the entire city. So at night, the whole city was ablaze with light. And it was a reminder to the Israelites again of that God is the light. And Jesus again takes that imagery and stands up in this place and says, I am the light of the world. Like you see these lights, but I am the light of the world. So all of this is happening around this story. The other thing you need to know about um, this, this festival is it was pretty much the Oktoberfest of the Jewish calendar. So it was a harvest festival, it was wild, it was, there were celebrations going on, 
And um, it, it was significantly fun. And of course, everyone's sleeping out in tents and there's people everywhere and probably bodies everywhere. So in terms of being able to find someone that maybe after the greatest day of the feast had maybe had a bit too much revelry and had found themselves in the wrong tent, I don't know that that would have been too hard at this point in time. Um, Jesus is already in conflict with both the Pharisees and the chief priests before this story. So the conflict is not new. He's been in conflict with them in chapter 7. He'll be in conflict with them in chapter 8 and chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. And he has stood up on the last and greatest day of the feast, which is day 7, the last and greatest day of the feast. And he's made his statement about being living water. And that's the great festival day. That's the biggest day. That's the funnest day. And then it says in... John 7:53 that everyone went home. So everyone at the end of the greatest day of the feast has gone back to their home, their tent, their booth, their place of rest. But Jesus goes and spends the night on the Mount of Olives. Now for all who were at morning church last week, what does what's the connection between the Mount of Olives? What does olive mean? What what does it share a root word with? Mercy. So on the last and greatest day of the feast, everyone has their celebration and goes home, but Jesus goes and spends the night on the mountain of mercy. And I think that that verse is there so that we, it frames the whole passage, so that we, like the, the author and the editor is trying to get us to see what's the point of putting in the detail of where Jesus spent the night. Like they don't tell us every night where Jesus spends the night. Why? They're trying to frame, they're framing it for us so that we, we get what this, what's going on here. And one of the last things, um, to get a bit, give a bit of um, context to um, this passage, is the song that would be sung every day and multiple times a day throughout this festival. The psalm that's attached to the, to the Feast of Tabernacles is Psalm 117. Um, yeah, Psalm 117. Well, no, Psalm 118 in our Bibles. So I want to read parts of this psalm to you right now and I want you to think about this story of the woman flung in the midst of the crowd and I want you to see if you can hear some of the irony going on that all week the Jewish people and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have been singing this song. They sang this song as they paraded to the pool of Siloam to get the water they sang this song as they went and poured the water over the altar. They have been singing this song to Yahweh all week. And I'm going to read parts of it to you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Israel say that he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, or let the priesthood say, that he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let all who fear the Lord say that he is good, his mercy endures forever. In affliction I called upon the Lord, and he heard me in a broad place. The Lord is my helper. I shall not be afraid of what man will do to me. All the nations surrounded me. 
but in the name of the Lord I defended myself against them. They circled and surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord I defended myself against them. <coughs> they surrounded me like bees around a honeycomb, and they were inflamed like fire in a thorn bush. But in the name of the Lord, I defended myself against them. I was shoved and disheartened that I might fall. But the Lord took hold of me. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The sound of exceeding joy and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord worked its power. The Lord chastened and corrected me, but he did not give me up to death. I will give thanks to you, for you heard me, and you became my salvation. The stone the builders rejected, the same, became the head of the corner. And this came about from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. It's ironic, isn't it? They've been singing that song all week. Which just goes to show that you can sing all the right words. And you can do all the right things. But if God is not at work in your heart, it's not a lot that changes. So I've been singing this song all week. So here are some things I want to just pull out of this story. Um, Jesus is being set up. Like, this is a trap. It says so in our, in our passage. The teachers of the law, the teachers of the law, the ones who are supposed to teach the law to the people, and the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus. This is a premeditated event. Um, they probably did not just stumble upon this woman. I mean, it's creepy if you give your imagination to this story. Like, what were these people doing that night to follow someone long enough in order to catch them in the act of adultery? Like, it's creepy that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees would be doing this, the holy men of Jerusalem, seeking out someone doing wrong. And it just, she, it just goes to show, she's, really, she is a pawn in their power games. This is not about this woman. Um, she's just a pawn, as women have been in men's power games for, for a very long time. And the other interesting thing about this story is that these men obviously come to the temple carrying stones ready to stone her. Like, I don't know about you, but I do not think that lying around the temple courts were bundles of stones for stoning. Like, you don't get that sense. So these men have not only intentionally and voyeuristically followed enough people in order to trap someone in order to get Jesus, they've also walked that day to the temple with bags full of stones ready to kill. Like, that's a very premeditated action. Like, and it says a lot about the state of their hearts, which isn't very nice. Um, let me read verses 4 to 6 again to you. Um, they, they make the woman stand before Jesus and say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. So basically, this is the trap. If Jesus says, yes, you're right, stone her, he's actually 
in violation of Roman law, which prohibited the Jews from, from killing anyone in an act of justice. So if Jesus says yes, they can get him with the Romans. If Jesus says no, he's actually in violation of Jewish law and they can get him because he's, you know, revoking the, the laws of God as they see them. So that's the double bind that Jesus is in. The Romans will get him or the Jews will get him, whatever he says. It's lose-lose. But here's the thing. They, the teachers of the law, are actually being incredibly sloppy with the law. So they come and say, this is what Moses commanded us. But actually, it's not really 100% what Moses commanded them. And I want us to have a look at what the law of Moses actually does say that's relevant to this passage. And before we read these passages, I do just want to acknowledge that for us people in 2022, when we read some of these sections of the Old Testament, they are horrific. The law as it is written is violent and horrible and many like we sang in the song earlier we wrestle with the tension between God is good and we see the evidence of seemingly God says these things so I just want to acknowledge that this is horrific what we're going to read and we wrestle with these things so in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10 this is what the law says if a man commits adultery with another man's wife both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. So that's the first reason they're being sloppy with the law, because the man's not there. The law commands that both the man and the woman should be stoned, but they're breaking the law by letting the man off and bringing the woman. So they're being sloppy, because the law clearly says both the man and the woman. Then in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we have these passages. If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God in violation of his covenant, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death and then the hands of all the people. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 19, it goes on to, to have stipulations around what to do if you are a false witness in things like this. If you are a false or misleading witness in a case where death, the death penalty is the outcome, then what happens is the death penalty gets turned upon you and you, in fact, get stoned. So that's the law. So they're being very sloppy with the law because both the man and the woman are, aren't there. I think it... In truth, it's probably unlikely that it was the teachers of the law and the Pharisees that caught this woman. It was probably one of their lackeys. In other words, the witnesses aren't there. And there actually needs to be not one, but three eyewitnesses. So three people had to stand around watching this woman and the man who isn't there commit adultery. Like it's, I think Jesus knows, he intuits that there's something amiss here. And he knows the law better than they do and he's actually attending far more closely to the law than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are and while they might not technically be false witnesses like there's no suggestion that this woman actually wasn't guilty of what she did they're probably being a bit twisted in how they legally fulfill the act of witnesses so Jesus I think he's sensing and he knows this. So this is another example we have of Jesus. 
He's not abolishing the law, but he's fulfilling it in a way that nobody ever really recognised or understood. And he's actually embodying the law to its utter fulfilment. He is living out what it looks like to be the Lord of the law because he actually knows and he's living out the truth that mercy is actually the governing principle of the law. He knows that. He knows that mercy is the governing principle of the law and there is no mercy in what these men are doing to these women. Terry Vailing um, defines mercy as the love that watches over justice. And not justice as retribution or punishment, but justice as restoration and repair of wrong. And justice as the work that frees us all from that which binds us up. So mercy is the love that watches over justice. Or we could say mercy is the love that watches over the law. The law can never set us free. Punishment and retribution never set us free. The sacrificial system never set them free. It's mercy, the governing principle of the law, that brings freedom. And this is threaded through the Old Testament, even as we have the law blatantly explained. There are so many instances, including that psalm I read out, that highlights mercy as the pinnacle of God's character and nature. Not the law, not justice, not vengeance, not punishment, but mercy. God is good and his mercy endures forever. And in Hosea 6, Verses 6, prophetically, the prophet Isaiah speaking for God. He says to the, to the Israelites, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You guys have got caught up in this sacrificial system and you've missed the point that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 9 and again later, he says to the Pharisees who come to him with the law, like wielding the law like a stick, and he says to them, Go away and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's like Jesus is embodying the heart of God here. The heart of God, that mercy is what God longs for. Mercy endures forever. Punishment is a ridiculous cycle that brings nobody freedom. But mercy is the love that watches over justice, the freedom that sets us free from all the things that we're enslaved to. And later on in James... The brother of Jesus will write that mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the heart of God that, that the people have lost. This is the heart of God that often we lose and misunderstand. And Jesus is showing us what God is like in this passage. He's revealing a great unveiling. This is what God is like. I desire mercy, not the sacrifice of this woman for your legal code, Mercy triumphs over judgment, not your wrath and retribution for what you think I need. The law is actually a slave to mercy. The law is the slave to mercy. And too often humanity have imagined that mercy is the slave of the law. And it's not. And Jesus is revealing to us truthfully what God is like. And the Israelites so often miss the point as they just attempted to do this strict adherence to the law and they missed that the point of the law is mercy. 
that God is mercy. So mercy has the final word. Mercy endures forever. And this is what Jesus is trying to poke at these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. They're trying to trap him and he's trying to set them free. Set them free from the violent and vicious cycles of the law. Um, There is another really interesting thing to me about this passage and it has to do with Jesus riding in the dirt. Um, I think this is a profoundly creative and incredible expression of the goodness of God. And as I've been thinking about um, all the reasons why Jesus may have chosen to do that, um, I feel like there's lots of possibilities that I want to share with you. And again, it's to lead us towards mercy. So, you know, we have in um, verses 6 to 8, but Jesus, so they're trying to trap him. But Jesus, in the midst of all of this, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning, in other words, Jesus just, he's like he completely ignores them. He's just had a naked woman in the middle of his sermon. He's preaching in the temple courts. He's had a naked woman thrown in the midst. And I'm sure he feels uncomfortable. She is incredibly uncomfortable and vulnerable and exposed. And then he has these probably garbed up, you know, teachers of the law with all their headdress on and their robes and their sashes and their phylacteries and all these important guys just like bringing this woman and, and then the crowd that's sitting around him. So it's like a, it's a circus basically. And Jesus, in response to all of this, just simply bends over and begins writing in the dirt and I think this is, like, phenomenal. And then, of course, all the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they just, they don't stop. They're just harassing him. What do you say? Come on, what do you say? What do you say, teacher? They're just harassing him. So Jesus then, in that moment, stands up and says, all right, like, let any one of you without sin cast the first stone. And then without even waiting to watch what they do, he just bends back down and keeps drawing in the sand which is just a, such an interesting thing to do. So why, what, what's this thing about Jesus drawing in the sand, riding in the dirt? I feel like there's lots of possibilities about what's going on here. Number one, Jesus could simply be drawing the attention of the crowd away from the naked woman. It's, if that's the only thing Jesus was doing by riding in the dirt, then that is a really incredible thing to do. Because if you imagine you're the woman, unclothed, and thrown into a group of men with everyone's eyes on you. Is that not the most shameful thing that could happen to you? You're exposed. And Jesus' act of bending down and starting to draw in the dirt is a way of getting the whole crowd's attention away from the woman because all of a sudden they're super interested in what the heck is he drawing? So, you know, you can imagine them all peering over each other's shoulders and looking at the ground and not looking at the woman. It's a great act of dignity that Jesus does in drawing their attention away from this woman. And if that's all it is, then that's, that's a beautiful thing. But I think that there's more to this. Here are some other thoughts that I have. Jesus does this very strange thing and the, the author of this passage just happens to say that he keeps he he bends down and he stands up and he bends down and there's a very active and it's very moving and it's very embodied the things that are written in this passage 
And I feel like what we can see in Jesus, if Jesus is revealing to us what God is like, then he's revealing to us the nature of the God who's, who's willing to stoop down and get in the dirt and be involved there. He is embodying truth. Or in other language, he's doing a prophetic act. He's embodying the truth that God is the one who stoops. He doesn't stand above and he doesn't lord over, but he gets underneath the worst of our sin and lower than our lows and gets in the dirt and he's happy there. And it's a beautiful rendition of, you know, in Psalm 113, you know, the psalmist writes, Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high, the one who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. And I think this is what he's revealing to us with these actions, the stooping down. He's revealing to us what cannot be seen. And what cannot be seen sometimes with our human eyes is that we serve the God who stoops to get down with us, to be in the dirt. And he's happy there. He lifts us up from the dust. He raises us from the ash heap. And I think he's doing this for the woman. One of the other things I think he could be doing with this passage um, this works for those who were there watching at the time. This always works for us as we read. Um, and I think there's a connection we're supposed to make here about, like, Jesus, the Son of God, is writing. And immediately what should come to mind for us is, when else has God written? Because I think there are connections. This is, these are the, this is the intelligent, intentional nature of this passage. I think we're supposed to be making connections between the other times that God has written. So here are some times when God has written. You know the story in Daniel chapter 5? It's weird. The whole book of Daniel's weird. But you know the story in Daniel chapter 5 when the, the magic hand or the disembodied arm just appears in the air and there's writing on the wall? You know that? They don't tell that in kids' church, do they? That's, <laughs> that's the adult version. It's a bit weird. But anyway... <laughs> The hand of God is just supposed to appear in the midst of this, you know, story and it writes on the wall and it writes these words, many, many tekel parson. And this is what it says. This is what that means. God wrote on the wall, I have numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your kingdom will be divided. Don't you think, do you see the connections? Do you, you know, God wrote, what do, I think he would be saying the same to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. God has numbered the days of your power and control over my people. And I'm going to bring it to the end because it won't be but 40 years from now this whole temple will be rubble. You have been found. You think you're weighing this woman and she's found wanting? Well, I tell you, I'm weighing you on the scales, and you are found wanting. Your kingdom will be divided. Your justice is deficient. It is deficient of mercy and of love, and it is not of God. I think we're meant to make that connection. God is writing. God is writing. There's another instance about writing in the dirt in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13, and this is what it says. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. 
All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now, what's the Feast of Tabernacles about? Living water. See the connections we're meant to be making if we know our Old Testament? You have fors- He's standing there. The spring of living water is standing in their midst and saying, you have forsaken the spring of living water. Maybe he was writing all their names in the dust and they're all like peering over, oh, this is Johnny. Oh. I don't think so because I don't think God is like that in exposing even them. But maybe that's what he was doing. And I think we're meant to see that those who turn away from the spring of living water, their names are written in the dust. Another thing, of course, that where God writes is God gave Moses the law. And Mosaic tradition would say that God himself wrote the law on the stones, the, the, the tablets. And I just love the idea that they have this profound story about the law being written on tablets of stone. But here we have the Lord of the law writing mercy into the very dust from which we are created. That's profound to me, that we have the law on stone, but I wonder if what we're meant to see is Jesus is writing mercy into the very fabric of humanity, this dust from which the Bible says we're created and God is writing mercy into our very bones. No longer is the law an external thing on a stone. Mercy is written into us. I wonder if that's what God is doing with the writing. The fourth and maybe last possibility I want to bring up is that I just simply think that the act of Jesus stooping down, writing in the sand, not saying very much, biding his time, is actually Jesus is revealing to us like, God's divine pause for mercy. God is, Jesus is instigating mercy for everybody in this passage. It's not just mercy for the woman, although it is mercy for the woman. There is mercy in this passage for the mob of religious zealots. There is mercy in this passage for the crowd. And there is mercy in this passage for the woman. And I think the truth is that divine love makes time for mercy to be at work in people's hearts. That goes for these people back then, that goes for us now. That actually divine love, God's love, God's very nature with us is that he gives time for mercy to be at work in our hearts. And God knows humanity. He made humanity. Jesus was a human. And I think he knows that... You know, when we're faced with those heightened events, we're basically just living out of our reptile brain. Fight, flight, freeze. Everyone in that moment when a mob comes and throws a naked woman at their feet is in fight, flight or freeze. The mob is in, you know, fight. The crowd is in freeze. Who knows where the... He's taking them out of that part of their brain and pausing long enough for their empathy to switch on, for them to get back into their upstairs brain, if you've done any of that kind of language. He's getting them out of fight, flight, survival and into logic, mercy, empathy, understanding. And we need that. 
And I think it's amazing. Like Jesus has spent all night on the mountain of mercy. All night. And I wonder if he was singing that Psalm 118 song to himself all night. God, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. God, you are good. Your mercy endures forever. And he knows how long it takes for mercy to be at work in our lives. And he knows that when we're in chaos, we will never go to mercy first. We will always go to judgment, retribution, defensiveness, fight back, run away. And he needs to get us, get them all out of that space. And so he gives time for mercy to be at work in their hearts. Jesus gave time for mercy to be at work in the accusers' hearts. This is why he was showing mercy for, to them as well, because rightly he could stone them for what they've done. He doesn't want anyone to die. So he gives them time enough to come to their senses, drop their stones and walk away. He doesn't want vengeance on them anymore that he wants to see them do vengeance on the woman. So he gives time for mercy to be at work. He's showing mercy to everyone. These teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they come to Jesus to test him in the law and he responds by testing them in mercy because mercy will always triumph over judgment. Punishment and judgment doesn't work to transform anyone's heart. It just activates shame and defensiveness. And God will forever pause long enough for his mercy and his goodness to be at work in our hearts so that he will bring us through to freedom. Sometimes we wonder, why do things take so long in my life? Maybe you're just experiencing a divine pause for mercy. Maybe God knows that mercy is slow, that we are sometimes slow. So the fruit of mercy in our lives is freedom. For the woman, the fruit of mercy is the freedom from whatever cycles of lack and insecurity and need or powerlessness or whatever it was that caused her not to go home to her tent but go find someone else's tent. I don't know what was going on. We don't know what was going on in that woman's life. But mercy at work in her life will set her free from whatever's driving her. Mercy for the mob is freedom from the cycles of judgment and punishment and violence that they are stuck in. They're stuck in believing that God is vengeful, that God wants sacrifice and that God is wrath. And mercy is freeing them from that cycle which just keeps them stuck in the law. And the crowd, Jesus is setting the crowd, the passive onlookers, free from the cycle of passivity that they are watching all of this unfold and nobody is doing a thing. That's a problem, but that's a worldwide problem that we're all engaged in unjust systems and most of us act passively and don't have eyes to see. And Jesus is giving mercy time enough to work in the crowd, giving them time to see the system that keeps some people in power and some people in the dust. And he's letting mercy work in them as well. And I think that's how we know that the divine pause for mercy is at work in our lives. How do we know that God's divine work of mercy is at work in our lives? We have freedom. We feel ourselves slowly being set free from the things that are enslaved to us. And when we allow mercy to be at work in our lives through this passage, we, we're able to say we have the freedom to acknowledge. Like, Jesus, I am the mob. 
I am the mob. I have carried stones to the house of God to kill people. I judge. I am stuck in retribution and judgment and violence. I, that is my heart sometimes, God. I am the mob and I need to be set free from wrath and punishment. We get, we're set free to be able to say, I am the crowd. Like, I am passive in my complicity to systems that keep people up and keep people down. I am complicit in systemic injustice and I'm passive in the face of it sometimes and I'm stuck in my ability to do anything about it and I don't know what to do. We're free to acknowledge that and let mercy be at work in our lives. And we're free to say, I'm the woman, God. I'm the woman. I'm driven by my passions. I'm things that aren't good for me. I just end up doing. I'm addicted to crap that brings me no good in my life. And I need to be free. I'm stuck in shame. And I look for love and acceptance in all the wrong places. <laughs> we're free to acknowledge all the ways that we're the woman and allow mercy to set us free. And God's unfailing and unending mercy is the love that watches and waits over my freedom and your freedom. Mercy is the love that watches over justice. The justice that's there not to punish, but the justice that's there to set us free. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the good news of Jesus. It's mercy for all. Mercy for us. Freedom for us. It's not the law as a stick held over our lives, but it's a divine pause for mercy that lets freedom be at work in all of our hearts. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. (laughs) 